Welcome again to Lettered Streets Covenant Church. Um, if you came in late or are just tuning in on the live stream and we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Bridget Reeves and I have the privilege here of being a partner at LSCC. Um, during these eight weeks that Pastor Chris is on his renewal leave, there are a few of us that have the opportunity to share the word in a preaching format here. Uh, prior to preaching the little bits that I have here at LSCC, I've ha I had the opportunity to do some preaching and teaching down at the mission, um, where I feel like I grew a ton. I still have lots more growth to do, but I grew a ton there. Um, there were questions and comments galore, and that was in the middle of sermons. So I have to say this crowd has been way calmer than the crowds I'm used to. Uh, it, I feel like in some ways it prepared me for some of the questions that I get from kids because people were just so frank. There's no facades at the mission, right? There's no facades from folks. And so people would just ask the questions that they were wondering. Um, and kids too, they ask some doozies of questions. And for us at least, I don't know if anyone else after spending time with kids that you've also experienced this, but it comes up in the car. Um, those questions while you're driving along, the doozies of questions. And so at one point we were driving, it was during COVID and we're driving to uh, LSCC and they're doing one of those like bag pickups in the parking lot where you drive around the circle. And so we're on our way there and one of our kids asked, mom, did God make us? And I'm like, yeah, he did make us. And, and then their eyes get big, all of us. And I was like, yes, all of us. Well, did his hands get messy? And I was like, good question. And then even more recently, there was at one point, one of our kids uh, asked as we're driving to preschool, they were like, well, mom, you know Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit? Yeah, yeah, I do know that. And uh, well, before that, uh, was, there, was there ever winter? And I was like, I don't know, like six years of seminary did not prepare me for this. And I was like, I don't know, I'll have to think about that. And they're like, I was like, well, why? Why are you asking if there's winter? And they're like, well, because in winter, things die. And you said that there was no death before the fall. And in winter, flowers die. So was there winter before the fall? And I was like, oh, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm going to have to think a little bit more about this. And they were immediately like, well, let's, let, let's ask your phone. And I was like, my phone. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know if my phone's going to know. And they were like, well, let's call Gigi or let's call Aunt Kiki. And I was like, okay, we're phoning friends now. But these questions, they were like doozies of questions. And I feel like, to be honest, that these last three chapters of the book of Esther have some doozies of questions uh, that we get to dive into today. And so um, I'm grateful to be able to do that with you and along with you. And uh, yes, so let's take a deep breath. And we're gonna dive into the last three chapters of our four-week installment in the book of Esther. Um, last week, we left off in verse two in chapter eight, and this was after the king gave Mordecai his signet ring, and Queen Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And so we have the leader of the enemy of the Jews, Haman, defeated, and we have some of God's people, Esther and Mordecai, in places of significant power in the empire. Yet, the battle is not done. Haman's edict from chapter three, where uh, he said for everyone in the 12th month to take up arms and to kill and destroy and annihilate the Jews is still out there and live. Some may say that the war is won, but the battle still has to be fought. 
In many ways, the people of God can breathe a sigh of relief because they know who has the king's ear. And from what we know in the first few chapters of the book of Esther, that's a big deal in this empire. This king is easily manipulated by whoever is around him. But they are still living with this terrifying order looming overhead. This may remind you a little bit of the place, the state that we currently live in, in this already and not yet place. God has won the war with Jesus's resurrection. Satan has been defeated and Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And yet, we still feel the effects of the fall. All sad things have not been undone. There are still tears and grief and sadness and sickness and death. So here's where we pick up the story in verse three of chapter eight, when Esther goes before the king again and pleads and weeps on behalf of her people. And she says in verse five, should I do anything different with the mic? No, we're good? Okay, cool. Uh, So verse five reads, she says, if it pleased the king and if I have found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king, and which we talked about the first week, is most of the known world at that time. That empire was big. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Notice the word revoke in verse five. The theme of reversals that we talked about last week where our God is a God of reversals. It's gonna continue into this week. The king ends up giving his approval for what Esther has requested and and says to go ahead and use his signet ring as a seal of full authority when they write this reversal of an edict. Mordecai wrote the edict on behalf of the king in verse 11 saying, The king allows the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. This is a very specific example of one of the reversals that takes place in the book of Esther. This edict from Mordecai, it reflects, it echoes the first edict from Haman and Xerxes with the every city, destroy, kill, and annihilate three verse phrase that comes again and again, women and children included, and to plunder their goods. This directly reverses that first edict that was given. And again, we have the God of reversals, not just eliminating the threat, but reversing it entirely. And then chapter eight, verses 16 and 17 come. And this is after the Jews had begun hearing this new edict, the one proclaimed most recently from Mordecai. This is what happens next. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. There is light 
and gladness and joy and honor. This is the opposite of the grief and the sackcloth and ashes that we saw just a few chapters before. I find verse 17 actually really interesting. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This probably meant that they were trying to pass themselves off as Jews. The people of God were now in power. And so now people wanted to align themselves with the people who were in power at the time, and which kind of shows how fickle our hearts can be. We're just going to go with whoever is in power. There's a good chance that this passing off as Jews was more of a political or a fear-driven thing than a religious thing, since the people who were in control of the empire were now Jews themselves. Four weeks ago, we talked about this empire and how it's morally ambiguous, wishy-washy in its decisions, and led by impulsive, self-serving people. If the people of God were hoping for deliverance from the edict from Haman, if they were hoping for it, for this deliverance from a specific direction, it probably wasn't from the palace. They may have hoped for a prophet or a priest that had a direct word from God, or maybe even a supernatural staff to lead their way to victory. Or maybe they hoped for a warrior that would come in and take the kingdom by force and save them and deliver them. Uh, this last week, I was watching the Disney movie Mulan uh, with my kids, and not just myself, and we were watching it, and there's this one scene where Mulan is heading to the emperor's army to take the place of her father. And she finds that she has two stowaways on her journey. One is the little cricket from her grandmother. It's like really small and just kind of comes along on her shoulder often. And then the other one is this little lizard, um, the skinny little lizard. And, the, and the liz when the lizard talks, he, he says his name is Mushu. And he was sent by the family guardians to help her succeed and bring honor to the family. And she responds, the ancestors sent a lizard to help me? And he says, no, I'm a dragon. Rawr. And, you know, he pretends to be a fire-breathing dragon. And I, I just wonder, as I was watching this scene with the book of Esther fresh in my mind, I was wondering, if someone had told the Jews, your deliverance isn't going to come from a prophet or a priest, it's going to come from the palace from the very place that the first edict came from for your destruction. It's gonna come from the palace, and not only is it gonna come from the place where, where the word of your destruction came from, but it's gonna come from a beautiful young girl. That they similarly would have said, God sent a girl to the palace to help us? And I feel like Esther and Mordecai, they came out of left field in many ways, surprising the people of God. They would not probably have been their first choice or their second choice or would have been noticed even by the people of God initially as the people that would deliver them. And we'll come back to Esther and Mordecai here in a second. But first, we're going to focus in on chapter 9. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. So we're going to be reading chapter 9 verses 1 through 19. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, 
for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Espata, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eridata, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vyasatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they lay no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder." Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day, and on the 14th the Jews of the villages who were in rural towns hold the four and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Feel free to be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can read it and we can study it freely here. God, I lift up to you our understanding of your word, Lord. Let it honor you. God, I also pray for what you're doing in each of our hearts, my heart included, God. I pray that we would remove any barrier, Lord. Help us get rid of any distraction of what you're doing in our hearts, God. And let us yield to your work. God, thank you for this story, this book, for your deliverance with Esther and for us today. Amen. Okay, thank you for bearing with the the 19 verses there. Um, The thrust of this passage, and I hope you heard it in the passage, the thrust of this passage is one of deliverance. It describes how a group of people who were under the sentence of death are now no longer, and now actually the ones with the power. It's not surprising that throughout the history, the people of God, 
throughout history, the story of the people of God being delivered in Esther has brought great comfort to Christian and Jews alike. During the Holocaust, Jews would actually recite the book of Esther from memory in concentration camps. It would bring them reminders of God's deliverance in the past and the hope for his deliverance from the horrific present day circumstances that they were in. The book of Esther has also provided great comfort to Christians who have felt the threat of government and powerful groups. And this is the spirit in which it is written. There is an intended comfort and relief from the author. Chapter nine can feel a bit tough for us in our modern day thinking though, as we read the words, struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them in those depictions. When we read about things like holy war, as some have termed this here in Esther, there are three things that I want us to keep in mind. One, the original intent of the author in Esther. As already stated, it's that the reader be comforted and moved to praise and thanksgiving and feasting. God delivered his people. God's rescue plan has not been thwarted. We should receive, receive the story as comfort first and foremost. Second, this story is not a disconnected singular story in scripture. Esther is part of a larger biblical narrative. The people of God are heading into a time of 400 years of waiting and silence. They're going to have to wait for a Messiah, and God's work in Esther reminds them of his faithfulness and that he will bring about a Messiah and save his people. The Jews reading this would know that if Haman was successful, that would have been it. There would have been no new covenant, no Messiah, no savior of the world. There was a lot at stake. So when the people of God in the book of Esther defended themselves against people trying to annihilate them, they were preserving God's people and ultimately fighting for his covenant to be fulfilled. This is a different motive than fighting so often has in our world today. This is also why we do not need to engage in holy war today. The fulfillment of God's new covenant in Jesus Christ is not dependent on God's people living in physical boundaries of a geographical area. Our battle today is waged in the spiritual realm, in human, within human hearts, not against flesh and blood. The holy war in the past was necessary for the survival of the Messiah's race, but it is not anymore. Thirdly, contrary to many other stories of holy war in the Old Testament, in Esther, the people of God did not profit from this war. You may have heard, I emphasized three times in the reading of chapter nine, they did not put hands, they laid no hand on the plunder. There had been multiple times in the past when Israel got themselves in trouble for doing this very thing. And this is actually a reflection. It, kind of reflects back to when King Saul, he fought the Amalekites and he did lay hands on the plunder and he took some of it for himself. And that's actually what led to him being decrowned. And there's this, here we have this purity of intent. The people of God are only fighting when threatened and without profiting 
from this war. And yet, as we've talked about throughout the book of Esther, no one has completely pure motives. We all have mixed motives and complicated feelings. The only person who had absolutely clean hands and a pure heart to engage in battle was and is Jesus Christ. After Jesus' work on the cross, holy war is not only not necessary, but it's dishonoring to God. Jesus' work on the cross was the full and complete war against sin and evil. It is done. Queen Esther surprises readers, though, in chapter 9, through her request for the Jews in Susa to have one more day to fight back against those threatening the people of God. And Xerxes grants them this privilege. And I think that this tells us less about Esther being a warmongering queen and more about the anti-Semitism and how deep it went in Susa. So quickly after this, in verse 18, there is feasting and gladness and rest. The majority of the next section of this book outlines how the Jews are supposed to annually celebrate the Feast of Purim and what it will look like in those early years. As someone that has had a little bit of training in trauma response, I find this part of the book fascinating. And I, I say trauma because living under the threat of genocide uh, would be considered trauma by most standards. Uh, Dr. Judith Herman, who's a leading trauma expert, writes that trauma recovery usually happens in three stages. The first is safety and stabilization. The second is remembrance and mourning. And the third is reconnection and integration. And it seems with wiping out the threat and ensuring safety, the first stage post-genocide threat is accomplished, the safety and stabilization of the people. And then there's the remembrance and mourning that look like the rest, the feasting, the reading of the scroll of Esther. And then we have the third stage, the reconnection and integration that happens annually with the remembrance and the sharing of food and community. And I just, when reading this, I was, I was thinking about God's care for us and thinking, should it surprise us that the God who created our bodies, authored our emotions, and heals our hearts knows how to tend the people of God after trauma of imminent genocide? And I'm not saying that the book of Esther should become the next counseling textbook in all of our programs, uh, but I do think that we can be reminded of God's good care for his people and the extreme threat that they were under. And we can be encouraged that that same God who cared for Israel back then cares for us today in our own stuff, in our own trauma, in our own sadness and grief. The name Purim also has significant encouraging meaning to the original readers and Jewish people today. It comes from the word pur, which originally was a Persian word for lot or die, the singular word for dice. It was used to describe Haman casting lots, casting pur, to choose the day on which the Jews would be destroyed, back in chapter 3. And this was a common thing amongst the ancient cultures uh, to seek God's guidance, or the God's guidance. Joshua actually used the same method when dividing the promised land amongst the tribes in Joshua 18. But back then, the Hebrew word for lot was used, and that's the word goral, goral in Hebrew. 
Psalm 16, verses five through six also use this word. I'm gonna read that for us. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot, my goral, secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. David is saying here that God is the one that secures Israel's destiny, that sustains them, that protects them. Mordecai and Esther, in choosing the word Purim to commemorate God's deliverance, are nodding to the fact that, yeah, you in Persia, using this per- Persian word, have sought your God's timing for our destruction. Using lots. But God, Yahweh, is the one that secures us. He is for us, and we're going to feast, we're going to celebrate that. You may cast your lots, your purr, but God is the one that makes our future secure. The other, other reason that I believe that this ending of the book of Esther is so incredible is because of verses 29 to 31 in chapter, tw- chapter 9. I'm going to read those for us. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming the, the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. One second. Here is a woman, Esther, who has experienced the loss of both parents and then was taken from her family, Mordecai. Nine times out of ten in the Old Testament, women were valued for their family connection or the kids that they bore. Esther has no parents, and from what we know, no kids. We don't know if she experienced infertility. We don't know if she didn't hang out with Xerxes enough or what, but she doesn't have kids as far as scripture goes. She is a leader of the people of God in a secular position, calling the shots and making it an impact. And in the midst of a culture and tradition that highly value producing heirs, God uses someone that not only doesn't make their biggest impact at the people of God that way, but doesn't seem to do it at all. Verses 29 to 32 say, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. This is one of only two instances in all of the Hebrew scriptures that we have testimony of a woman's writing. And it's in a contrast to the first one. This one is in this positive light. It's in a positive light that Esther is on this positive side of things and she is confirming and giving greater credence to what was written already about this new feast. And this is something that primarily prophets and priests decided on, these new feasts. But Esther and Mordecai are the ones jointly deciding on this and instigating this for the people of God. 
And then there's her introduction. All of her identities are being honored in that sentence. Queen, her bio-dad connection, her kinship father connection with Mordecai. This is another example of Esther leaning fully into her identities, her full identities, all that God has for her, and being the most effective and credible in that place. As an adoptive and foster parent, I think that I have a special place in my heart for verse 29, where the birth or first parents or tummy parents are honored right alongside the today, right here, forever tucking you in at night parents. And I'm not about to convince anyone to join foster care, though if you're interested, please let me know. I'd love to chat with you. Um, what I do want to point out here is that Esther's embracing her, of her history and identities is part of her character development and growth. Early on, we learned about her two names, and we learned about her compartmentalizing her faith and herself in the empire and not sharing of her faith. And here, all of her heritage and her faith and all of her background is coming into one, in this one per person, this integration of this person. And she's leading to her fullest extent in God in that place. Not hiding her faith, not hiding her heritage, not hiding her history or where she came from. And this, I believe, is one of the great reversals in this book. In the beginning, we see certain people, the woman, the eunuchs, being valued as less than and used by the powerful men, seemingly with no protection. But at the end of the book, the king is being advised by a Jewish woman and her uncle. Esther and others hid their faith and heritage out of fear in the empire early on in this book. And now that same faith and heritage is where Esther's authority stems from and what people are flocking to. We can take great courage from this. God is for us, every one of us, each part of us as we grow into Christ-likeness. The book of Esther reminds us how God can and will use big and small things to accomplish his purposes. From the king's sleepless night back in chapter 6, where it was the beginning of the reversals in favor of the Jews, to the queen of the empire, he is present. There's a pastor years back that would remind me again and again, and every one thing God is doing, he's doing a thousand other things. And that's how I feel like in the book of Esther with the sleepless night, with Haman being in the courts, all of these little, seemingly little things between so many others. There is no sacred and secular divide here at the end of this book. Redemptive history and secular history combine. And this, I feel like, is where we live. In 1 Peter chapter 1, thank you, Ashley, for reading that earlier. I'm going to flip there myself. We live rejoicing and confident of the hope that we have in Jesus' work on the cross. In verses 3 to 5, it depicts this. This is the already of the already and the not yet. We live with this hope and rejoicing in it. And then in verse 6, we're reminded of the not yet portion. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ can live knowing their lot, their goral is secure. In the midst of a culture and times that seem anything but stable and secure. We look not to who is in the seat of power here on earth for hope, but to the God who is for us. We've seen he's for us in the book of Esther, who sits on the seat of ultimate power and who causes sleepless nights and uses the unlikely to accomplish his purposes. If this describes where you're at, great. But if you're interested in more, if you're interested in this Jesus and this God and his ultimate care and power in that throne, please reach out to him. Reach out to a partner here at LSCC. Reach out to myself. We'd love to chat more about this guy named Jesus. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the book of Esther, for the ways in which you have showed us and reminded us that you are for us. God, in the midst of us living in the already and the not yet, God, I pray that when we feel the not yet so much, Lord, I pray that you would make your presence strong, that we would be comforted. And Lord, for those of us as well, Lord, that wonder about our past, our story, and wonder if you can use even us, God. Lord, I pray that the story of Esther would be a reminder to us, Lord, that you are for us. And that you use us unlikely people to accomplish your purposes, God. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.